quick warning, there's some foul language in this show. Hello, DC. Welcome back to Drip, a DC coffee podcast. On today's episode, I have Chris Vigilante of, you guessed it, Vigilante Coffee. Ever since I moved to DC, Vigilante Coffee in Hyattsville, Maryland has been on my radar. Chris's journey to become one of the fathers of specialty coffee in DC started as a simple mission to do something he loved versus work for monetary gain. To make Vigilante happen, Chris certainly paid his dues. Theft and bad investments could not keep this charismatic roaster from pursuing his personal legend. So sit back, enjoy your cup of coffee, and enjoy the show. I've always heard Vigilante, and I left DC in like 2014, and then when I came back about a year ago, I heard even more about Vigilante. So I was just extremely excited to run into you at the showcase, so I was very thankful of that. And um, you can't really talk about DC coffee without talking about Vigilante, or at least I don't think so. Well, so. I appreciate it. You know, we love being part of that culture. So. so I would just love to really start out and hear what got you into coffee in the first place, whether it's the Hawaii story or if it's kind of both, but I'd love to hear your kind of origin story in regards to coffee. Sure. I graduated in a recession from college and I had the benefit of watching a lot of my friends graduate a year ahead of me with none of the jobs that we thought would be there when we graduated. They weren't there. So a lot of people had to get jobs that were out of necessity to pay these student loans that they had, that we all had, Mm -hmm. like selling telecom. It seemed very passionless and I didn't want to go in that direction. So I just thought one day, like, you know, what is the only job I've actually ever enjoyed? And that was working at a small cafe and the cafe I worked at was in Miami for a summer. I just really dug the environment and the culture and the, the energy, conversations, the interesting customers you get. And I didn't even touch the coffee then. I just really knew I liked the energy and I thought it would be cool to own a coffee shop. At that time, I was very motivated to find out what I didn't want to do because I thought it would lead to what I did want to do. And so I had done a lot of internships and tested out different things. thought I wanted to be a veterinarian one summer. So I was a veterinarian, a pre-vet tech at the Miami Sea Aquarium really? and I made like six fifty, so I had to get a side gig and that's where I got that coffee shop job. And you didn't want to be a vegetarian <laughs> veterinarian after that? No, no. I could tell you some horror stories about that place. So I did it because uh, I thought I genuinely would like it and I thought it would, I would be passionate about it. Making money was never even a consideration. It was just like, because all the other jobs I did, I thought about money and how I would make money and all those things. And this was the first time that I was like, I'll just pick something I think I'll like. And I got a job at a small cafe in downtown Honolulu. I was living in Hawaii at the time. And the owner was extremely quality focused. Just me, him, and a roaster. And he really knew his stuff. He served Black Cat Intelligentsia on, on the bar. And he roasted his own, but he didn't feel like he had the confidence to do his own espresso. So we brought in Black Cat. Before long, he asked if I would join him in starting a small roasting company in Honolulu. I said, sure. And, you know, I was 20 years old. I was like, that sounds awesome. And I convinced Virginia Tech, which is where I was getting my undergrad, to give me full-time credits if I pursued this business and wrote about it. And so they agreed. And so I was able to keep my small scholarship and stay in Hawaii and pursue this company. And we started buying green beans from a farmer in the North Shore of Oahu. 
and it quickly dawned on me, this is the only state in which I'd be able to do that. I thought, well, this is better education than anything I'm getting at school. And I was sitting in coffee cuppings with farmers from the Big Island and, and like Pete Licata, who worked for Honolulu Coffee Company at that time. He was a world champion and there's like a lot of influential coffee people were surrounding me. And I was reading these articles and I'd see their names and I was like, man, this is something special here. So I want to see how far I can go with this. So I just kept on going and I eventually went to work for a big island coffee producer after me and Charles's company kind of dissipated. He moved to Japan. His wife was Japanese. He opened three new cafes there and uh, he wanted to sell me the small coffee shop in Honolulu, but 21 years old, I didn't have any money. So we sold it to a friend named Fred. Fred still runs it to this day, downtown coffee. And uh, I went to work for a big island coffee producer that was vertically integrated. They grew their own, roasted their own, sold their own. They're right next to uh, which a, a really well-known farmer. He's called Rusty's okay. out of Ka'u, Big Island, southwest of Kona. And uh, the Javar family was right next to, to Rusty's, so they always competed neck and neck. And I, I worked for the, the Javar family and started learning more about processing, more about uh, presentation, because they were very focused on beautiful presentation. And what type of processing did they use mostly washed and natural mostly washed yeah but up until that point you know my experience was going to a farm talking to a farmer buying the green beans and leaving it wasn't to engage Mm -hmm. Um, but now it was like i was one of the people with my hands in it you know i'm picking out unripe coffee cherries or like going into some parts of oahu that like there was rumor there were some coffee plants growing and we were looking for these plants and like i said there were some cool excursions that took place yeah did you find the plants? We did, yeah, on the west side of Oahu. Were they a different species? or It was all Typica. Okay. Uh, and they were producing cherries, but it wasn't of any you know, high quality at that time. But it was still really neat to do it. And um, so I worked with, with them, and they're called Pavaraga Coffee. They're still around. Ended up working for them for two years. And uh, late 2009, early 2010, I was kind of tired of the pace in Hawaii. I felt like I wouldn't be able to make the splash that I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do my own thing. So what do you mean by splash? I mean, really come into a coffee community and create a name, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of put your, your flag down. Yeah. So I had a natural draw towards Washington, DC come from Virginia tech. A lot of folks do. And uh, I did a Google search for New York, Philadelphia, and DC and DC had the least amount of specialty coffee hits. And almost no specialty coffee roasters at that time. The only one that was just then coming out was Qualia up in Petworth. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like a good fit. Plus, my buddy had a couch I could sleep on. So I was like, all right, I'll go to D.C. And that's how I ended up in D.C. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I left Hawaii. And before I left, I met a friend. He was in the marijuana business. Mm-hmm. And uh, he believed in what I was doing. So he gave me 15K in cash and said, you know, I'll be your first investor. I didn't know what I was doing with that money. So like, I think I like seven of it got blown on a coffee cart. We bought through eBay. And like when I got back to the East coast, yeah. I, you know, I, I got the cart and the intention was to open the business in DC and put this coffee cart in busy areas, you know, one man operation, crush it, go home and a bit. Unfortunately, I custom built it too much 
And the, the DOH, the Department of Health, just looked out the window and just kind of said, nah, that's not going to work. Like, they didn't even look at it. You know, they just could tell from afar that it was way too custom. Huh. So uh, I was able to use the car to a few events, like a motorcycle rally at RFK Stadium. That was a total dud. Where else? Uh, a festival in New York where I'm no longer allowed back to Suffolk, New York. <laughs> What'd you do? <laughs> Violated several health codes. <laughs> coffee was great, but uh, we weren't crushing on the coffee game, so I think we started busting out smoothies at the time. And we we're like, "Fuck it, we got to make some money somehow." So you know, we were like doing whatever we could, and it was just a super janky setup. And so you either pay the fine or you never return. So I decided never return. Like I had like a few thousand bucks more, and I spent it on like a forerunner with three hundred thousand miles on it. I don't know how to buy a vehicle. And my brother in law at the time was like, Yeah, this is solid, do it. I was like, Okay. So that thing shat out after a while. So I was down to my last couple thousand bucks and I had some money saved myself. In sorry for the the loan or the the fifteen K. Was yeah. there a contract or was it like no. you need to turn a profit in this amount of time? No. It was fifteen K cash in a brown paper bag. I'd never seen that much money in my life. I remember leaving Hawaii. I was wearing cargo shorts and I had the 15,000 bucks in my cargo shorts. So like 7,500 on one side, 75 on the other. And as I'm getting through the security, this little Hawaiian lady like looks in my pockets and she's like, Oh, okay. Well, good luck, brother. And she lets me through. I was like, whew. You know, like I totally could have just been, yeah, I think you can't travel with more than 10,000 bucks without claiming it. So I'm very lucky I got through that unscathed. And then, so a failed coffee cart, a you know, busted truck, and I had like four grand left or something, and I had like five grand of my own money, and I spent uh, seventy eight hundred on a coffee roaster, an IR three Dietrich, okay, that I found in Baltimore through a customer of mine. Dietrich, that's a it's a pretty big name in the coffee industry, right? Yeah, based out of Idaho, American Made Roasters, same roaster I learned on in Hawaii, so I felt really comfortable with it. An IR three roast approximately seven pounds, okay, sweet spots around five point six. And I had a customer who used to come in all, like every day. And he's the kind of guy that would tip you a dollar if you didn't have a dollar to tip. And he would ask me about my ambitions like in life, which is rare in the coffee mm-hmm. bar. You know, it's usually yeah. like, how's the weather, the news, sports, like general stuff. Yeah. But this guy would really engage with me. And this is in Hawaii? This is here. This okay. is, so I was a barista at two cafes here in D.C. Okay. The cart was failed. The truck was shot. I still had a little bit of money. I knew I needed to start roasting. Mm-hmm. I told him I wanted to roast and this was a passion of mine. And he said, well, my friend has a roaster in Baltimore and he's selling a roaster right now. You should go up and look at it. I went up. It was an IR3, same one I learned on. Paid him right there in cash on the spot. Loaded up in the U-Haul. And then I uh, didn't have a place to put it. So an old hippie we knew named Colonel let us put it in a like shipping container in Silver Spring in his yard. And I would run an extension cord from his house to the shipping container and I just like face the roaster so the smoke would billow out and that's where we started right there in that shipping container wow yeah and that customer that did that he, he died a year later it was just like the cosmos you know like I really believe in serendipity now mm-hmm. because I think that moment right then was like perfect timing and preparation all met you know and luck yeah so we're roasting in Colonel's basement or Colonel's uh, shipping container, rather. And uh, eventually, Colonel kind of got tired of us coming over there, roasting all, all day. I, I can um, imagine. It would be cold as hell, you know, like in the evenings. So, And uh, so you were working your, your two cafes, and then yeah. you 
you'd come up and roast. I come up and roast you yeah, on my after three, four PM I'd be up there roasting until late nine, ten, eleven o'clock at night. Mm. Yeah. Putting in the time. Putting in the time, yeah. Which it never bothered me. It, like I just always looked like I was stacking my ten thousand hours practice. Like I needed to put in the work if I wanted to be as good as I was hoping to mm. be. And uh that was it. Like I was just grateful for a place to roast. Yeah. You know? And so were you wholesaling this to places or were you just practicing? At that time I was just practicing. I was only doing Hawaiian coffee mm-hmm. and farmer's market here or there. The relationship with Pavaraga started to dwindle. And so I just kind of came to the conclusion that I thought I could do this myself and I mm-hmm. didn't need them. So I created, uh, I started to create this idea of vigilante coffee in my head. And, uh, in 2012, we officially registered in his business, launched some shitty little website, and uh, started approaching businesses on the H Street Corridor because that's where I lived. Mm-hmm. I lived in Trinidad, an apartment where it was a two bedroom, thousand bucks, which in DC, I don't even think those exist anymore. They're tough to find. And uh, one room was dedicated to green beans, just, you know, full of bags of Hawaiian coffee. And the other room is where I slept. And that's awesome, though. <laughs> It was a perfect little setup to get started at. I got robbed at that apartment once. And so that was the only major negative of that. I'm place. assuming they didn't take the 60 pound, 60 no. pound bag of coffee. Nope. Just like $10,000 in cash. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Like everything I had saved up until that point. And a lot of that was going to go back to my friend in Hawaii, the guy who had lent me that money, that $15,000. Mm-hmm. So I had to call him and say, I got robbed. And I can either say, you know, terminate the relationship. It is what it is. You're not getting your money back. Or I really felt like I was at a crossroads. Like I could make a choice to be a business person with integrity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I decided. I was like, all right, no matter how long it takes, I'm going to pay you back. And so uh, it's taken years, but I've paid him back uh, over the course of time. And that's always like a little thing I feel proud of because I was at my lowest mm-hmm. and I still was like, no matter what, going to pay this dude back. Yeah. Even if Vigilante never made it, I wasn't going to leave this person, you know, high and dry. It was like, he had believed in me. So I was going to do whatever I could to pay him back. So that's incredible. Yeah. It was an interesting ride. And you're, <laughs> you're with the likes of Abraham Lincoln, who filled out his grocery store, paid back his loan and was president of the United States. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So hmm. maybe... Chris for what twenty twenty now? <laughs> Vigilante in the White House? Oh hell no! You got to be insane to run for president. I, I forget what comedian was talking about. I was like, think about the person that actually thinks that Jerry Seinfeld was talking. Mm. About. Like, yeah, like you literally believe you know ruling the world, running the country. That sounds a lot like me. No, what are you nuts? That sounds crazy. Yeah, well, that's really impressive. But did you skip a whole basement scene in, I this, did. in this saga? I did skip the basement scene. So after Colonel's, we're roasting Colonel's, uh, Colonel got tired of having us there in that shipping container. So I had a friend who I had been roast or kind of like just hanging out with at the coffee bars I worked at in Austin. And I asked Austin, you know, I need a place to put my roaster. You got this little stable like basement thing. Can I put it in here? I think it was like 10 by 10, super small. And he was like, if you pay me in coffee, sure. Done. So that day we loaded up in the U-Haul. We brought the roaster over. We put it in his, his basement. And that became the home for two years. Two years. Two years in the basement, yeah. I had several roasters come and go or try to work with me down there. But 
I don't blame them. It was kind of hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you're yeah. resting in a basement for that long. Oh, well, so you were hiring roasters and yeah. Well, I was. So we were doing pop up shops at mm-hmm. the time. We were doing farmers markets. So I had a staff of like six or seven people. Okay, but we only work on like the weekend, and mm-hmm. I would do most of the bagging and delivery myself. Uh, but it came to a point where we were roasting like 600 pounds a week, and so I needed help. And five pounds at a time, 20 pounds an hour. That's a lot of work combined with the marketing and the sales and the development and everything else. So I hired my first roaster and, uh, he was good. His name was Mike. Uh, he was solid. He did get our delivery van stolen though. So one day he, he was loading up green beans at my apartment and he left the car warming up in the Trinidad neighborhood. You can't do that. Came out, van was gone and it had two sacks in it. So back in those days, two sacks was everything to me. And and how much, that's so that's 120 pounds and how much was each sack? Oh, it was give or take about $3,000 worth of coffee in those sacks. So I was super distraught. <laughs> it was Hawaiian coffee. That's why it was so expensive. That whole story is a whole, we could do a podcast just on how we got that. Right. We got Stay that tuned. van back Stay eventually. Tuned. It was just like in the media too, like help vigilante find the van, but we got the van back and we had one sack in it. So, you know, it wasn't a total loss. Find out what they did with the other sack. I think we found all these blunt guts in the car and like, like dime bags. So I think they were just rolling around smoking hell of blunts in there and that they were like sick of this coffee sack. So they just ditched one at some point. That's all I can think. Okay. So we roasted in the basement. Yeah. For two years from that point forward and me and Austin developed a really strong friendship. He gave me great advice on different profiles and the way I was roasting. And he was very honest, which is something I needed at the time. As far as like, you know, really telling me if I was creating something worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in 2012, I got fired from one of my barista jobs. I think uh, it was like mother's day. I went to hang out with my mom and didn't. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. I, in retrospect, I was probably in the wrong, you know, like small business needed me. But your mom was happy. But my mom was stoked. And, uh, and then the other, other shop I worked for, I told them that I was going to focus on my business. And so I put in my two weeks and then I got really nervous because I woke up one day and I was like, how the fuck am I going to make rent? And, uh, I had a one way ticket to Columbia and like my intention was to go to Columbia and start sourcing coffee. I didn't know anyone in Columbia, but I knew that I, I just felt that if I went to Columbia with the right intentions, I'd be able to find somebody who wants to sell me coffee. Right. So yeah. I got, I remember waking up in my bed, like how the fuck am I going to make rent next month? Cause I got fired from one job. The other job told me I couldn't come back. <laughs> I tried to get back in the door. They were like, no, it's over. <laughs> and so Ooh. I was like, all right, I guess I'm just going to hustle. I got to make this work. Sink or swim. I went to Columbia on a whim that led to my partnerships all throughout Latin America. And it was like the best decision I ever made that trip to Columbia 2012. So we started working with uh, Caravella Coffee at that time. Uh, Caravella is a, a massive exporter within Colombia. Uh, we also started working with a farm called Santa Barbara Estates, and visiting their, their estate and really getting a handle on how coffee business is conducted in Latin America. Yeah. That trip was a catalyst for all of our Latin American coffees moving forward. Huh. And, and so. And was that one relationship or you just were able to talk to enough people? Like, who's this crazy guy from DC and we want to work with him? It, like I got to give full credit. It was really Caravella, you know? And I think a lot of roasters are afraid to like mention their name because like, without a doubt, those guys have 
single-handedly created or had a hand in creating the best coffee roasters in the world right now. Like you find a Salvadorian coffee you love more than likely these guys have their hand in it some way. Hmm. They're way bigger than they were when I first started with them. And I remember going to their cupping lab in Bogota and I told them like, I'm not shit. Like I'm the littlest customer you could ever, man. I'm going to buy like one sack this year, but I don't think I'll always be small. So if you're willing to work with me now, I think I can, I can make it worth your while down the road. And they were willing to take the risk on us and they started working with us. We started sourcing our Colombian coffee from them. And then as they started expanding into other countries throughout Latin America, it led to us developing relationships with farms through them and able to start bringing those coffees over. Wow. Yeah. Kudos to Caravella, man. Love those guys. They're amazing. That's really incredible. And that's, um, it seems like, so far in the story, there's been three big instances of serendipity that, you know, either pushed you towards getting into coffee or closed the doors in one place and opened up another. It just, I was actually talking to your wife before this and she was talking about even the shop was kind of serendipity in some ways. It's what's going on. You got some cosmic support going oh, on. Oh yeah, for sure. I think honestly, I truly believe that when you're pursuing your passion or like your heart is fully in it that the world will conspire to help you make this a reality. Mm-hmm. You just got to be okay with some failures along the way. There's going to be learning curves. That's like without a doubt. But if you can push through and just believe you'll get to the other side and it'll work out. And you know, we went from one sack in Latin America and this year we'll buy over a thousand. And it's kind of blows my mind when I think about it. That's incredible. The quote you used about the, the world conspiring to make your personal legend happen. Is that from the alchemist or is that just something you believe? Oh, it's absolutely from the alchemist. Okay. It's like one of my favorite books. That's a great book. And it spoke such truths. And I think I'm living proof of it. Like literally. And I, like if you speak with any entrepreneur, I think that they would testify to the same thing. Mm -hmm. I had this thing. I tell our guys, I'm like, this is your moment right now. You know, like if, if ever you're in your prime, it is now there is no down the road, this is the moment you got to seize it and take advantage of every opportunity in front of you and just become who you believe you're destined to become. Mm-hmm. I think that's something you're always striving for, but I try to like push that onto the staff a little bit more these days is you know, this is your prime. Yeah. Take advantage of it, man. You're a young man. You're a young woman right now is it. There will be no other chance. So make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't been able to talk to, a ton of your staff have talked to two or three people, but what is your thought and your vision for the way you lead vigilante and the way you train your crew? And yeah, just share some of that with us. I treat it more like a pro sports team. Okay. I don't believe that the company environment should be a family environment. Cause it's not, you know, uh, I think if you're the best player should play. So if you come to the bar and you're correct and you're the most professional and you deliver the best experience, then you're the guy or the female I want at the bar every day. And so we treat it like that with all of our operations. It's like, who's going to perform? Who's going to step up? At that same token, I like to play into people's niches. A great example is our lead trainer, Diane. Uh, there was a time when we kind of, like most small companies, you, you push people into roles they need. And we needed a manager at a time. And so we kind of like pushed her into this role and she wasn't thriving in it the way we would hoped. And, uh, we're at crossroads where she almost left us. And I, and 
I asked her, I said, well, what if you just wrote out your own job description? Go home, write up what you want to do here and let's talk. So she wrote out what she wanted to do and she had 10 years of teaching experience behind her. And she just kind of took all that and formulated it into a coffee trainer. And it was a role we needed, not one that we had given a ton of thought to yet. Mm-hmm. And we just transitioned her from the manager to the, the trainer. And it was like the world of difference. She's like, you know, in her own, you know, like really become something special. And she just placed really well at the qualifiers for the barista competitions, which helps legitimize her training programs. Um, and those are great examples of how we've really let our, our crew define their roles that fit them rather than trying to put square pegs and round holes. Mm-hmm. And then I believe in the, the sports team analogy. I think that the best players play. You know, at that same time, we don't take ourselves too serious. We're in the coffee business. We're not saving lives. We want to have an impact, but at the end of the day, if we don't show up to work, there's just some under-caffeinated people. And so, you know, try to take what we do with a grain of salt, have fun, enjoy ourselves. It could be all gone tomorrow, you know? That's just the way life goes. And so I try to remind everyone, like, we don't have to do this. We get to do this. Mm -hmm. So let's enjoy it, accept the challenges as they come, and, uh, you know, keep building. Yeah. Diana, the trainer, she was just written up by... High Soul Wire, I believe. High Soul Wire, okay. So check that out. That's Barista on Route 1 That's in Maryland. That's a long road, I think. It's a pretty long road. Okay. And, uh, and I, honestly, I think she is responsible for training upwards of 75 baristas throughout the DMV area. That's that's a large percentage, or it's at least a... Oh, it's... It's not a small percentage. It's not a small percentage at all. She's had her hand on quite a few trainings. Huh. Yeah. Randy. And so you're getting into a little bit of impact there. And in your vision statement, there's two spots where you mention impact. And one is use the money we purchase our coffee with to make a bigger impact where it is grown and then make the world a better place through vigilante coffee. Just tell us a little bit of the, the reasoning behind those and, and what that impact is. So uh, using the money we make mm-hmm. to make an impact, I've actually realize that the money that we spend can have a significant impact when you're a small business you really when you're first starting out you're in survival mode and you're trying to buy the best coffees you can but ultimately you're just trying to make it to tomorrow and make sure you can pay your guys you know at the end of the week as we start growing we went from one sack to 10 sacks to 100 sacks to 500 sacks to a thousand sacks i realized that who we buy coffee from is like voting with our dollars. Mm-hmm. And so if we buy from a farm that has the same values that we do, for example, if they pay the women as much as the men, if they don't use child labor, if they create sustainable practices on the farm, if they're implementing shade grown processes to you know, sustain as climate change continues to build, these are the people we want to work with and we want to see them grow. So that's who we should buy coffee from. You know, a good example is when we first started buying coffee, uh, we we're buying through Royal Coffee New York, and there was a big farm in Columbia that we purchased from, very big estate. They grew decent coffee, good coffee. Put like an 84 on the cupping table. Okay. 84 out of 100, right? 84 out of 100. And uh, it was a staple of vigilante coffee for the longest time, five, six years. When I went to roasting school with Will and Boot out in San Francisco, and I'm going to drop well in Boots' name real quick. Anybody sure. aspiring to roast, 
I highly recommend Willem Boots online coffee courses or his roasting school in Mill Valley. Uh, it's a game changer. And that's a, a great place to hone your roasting skills. But we were buying from Santa Barbara and it was the only coffee that was actually profitable in the company at the time. So I was buying all these other coffees and none of them had the margins that were actually making money. Everything was taking losses except Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is the only farm that, uh, the only coffee that was making money for us. But, uh, as we started to realize we could vote with our dollars, this is a very big estate, very wealthy estate. And as I was traveling to Columbia more and more, I wanted to support the smaller producers, the guys who were only making five to 10 sacks a year. I decided that we were going to drop Santa Barbara as our coffee and we were going to switch over to small producers. Wow. This was the only one. Wow. This was the only one that was profitable. And we switched over to this coffee that was a collection of producers from Tolima, from Calca, excuse me, from Tolima and Huila. It's all the coffee that these farmers normally would have to sell to like the Federation in Colombia and, mm. and maybe break even on it, probably take a loss. Now they can sell it directly to us and fetch specialty price for it. So all of a sudden our dollars are starting to build and we're voting for the little guy. Mm-hmm. And, and truth be told, it was a better coffee. It was corn at 86 and it went from being Castillo to being Catura. Um, a bigger fan of that varietal anyway. So, and those are both varietals. Those are both varietals. Yeah. Okay. So that was, that's one way in which we vote with our dollars. Mm-hmm. Another way that we've had an impact, there's an Indonesian coffee we've been working on for over a year and a half. It's called Solok. It's from Southern Sumatra. I spent about 10 days traveling throughout all of Indonesia, trying to find a really delicious washed coffee. Like I didn't want the typical Giling Basa that everyone knows from Indonesian coffee. Okay. I wanted this really clean, vibrant coffee. We found it in Southern Sumatra. Over the course of a year, we did a few fundraisers where we like, I had like 10 pounds of their coffee I brought back with me on the plane and we, we roasted it and we put it on our pour over bar and all the proceeds went to buying that farm seeds so that they could continue to grow their farm. And then we just purchased our first 10 sacks from them and they've arrived here and they're tasting delicious. So we're super pumped on that. And now the company that we worked with to bring it in, like I more or less had to like acquire an import license to do it, but I worked with uh, an awesome person named Jera from Inter-American Coffee. And now they want to go to Solok and buy Solok and fill a container. So it went from buying 10 sacks to over 300. And this is the first time Solok's ever exported coffee to the United States. And so I think I can't take credit Right for them producing great coffee because they were doing that already, mm-hmm. but we're at least helping and getting them more exposure to the American market, which will hopefully lead to more customers like Vigilante buying massive quantity from yeah. them at specialty prices under the American dollar. And lastly, our projects in Colombia, where we pay for medical and dental checkups for students of the small school in Jerico, Colombia. We carry a coffee called the Hedico Blend, which is a combination of about 10 farms. Each only grows about five to seven sacks. And so we, we combine it. It's about 30 sacks overall that we purchase each year. We take 10% of our proceeds from that and we give it back to the school and pay for a doctor and a dentist to come and provide these checkups for the students of the school. And all the kids at the school are the sons and daughters of the coffee farmers. So that program literally was like 
$500. It was like nothing for us to do that, for us to skim off a dollar off every bag sold and hand it back. That woke me up to like the impact that we can have. Mm -hmm. So those are the ways I think we're voting with our dollars to have an impact in the world. Yeah. And then um, uh, how do we make a world a better place to vigilante coffee? I think we do that on a daily basis in our shop and how we make you feel. I want you to feel good when you come into my business. I want you to feel even better when you leave it. When you first walk in through the door, you're going to be greeted with a really nice smile. So I'm going to ask you how you're doing. Or they're going to say, hey, I'm going to be right with you. You're going to know that your presence is felt and that we want to help you right away. And then we want to deliver great coffee and a great experience. And if that comes with a little education on the coffee, then great. We want to do that. But if it's not your cup of tea and you just want the coffee and no talk, that's fine too. But I think the way that we approach our service has an impact in our local community. And then we started realizing that if we approached not only our service like that, but if we approached how we interact with other businesses, how we interact with our delivery guy, how we interact with our coffee suppliers, how we interact with the mailman, people on our production team, everyone. These are all partners. They're all making this possible. So let's treat them well. And so we started throwing partner parties. Hmm. Like we had our first one like a month or two ago and we had a big taco bar, a few bottles of tequila, shut down the roastery early, invited all of our partners. And it was simply to put everyone in the same room and thank them. And at the same time, hopefully create new connections where other business might uh, spawn from, from these, these encounters and these meetups. So I think that's another way that we make the world a better place to vigilante coffee. You know, it's like we're trying to put out that good energy because mm-hmm. I think there's a ripple effect that occurs. Your comment about voting with your dollar, I work in the philanthropic space and you're starting to see a rise of impact investing. And mm-hmm. that's where, you know, you put your money into a social enterprise that does good work and you do expect a profit and that profit just co- keeps going back into that organization or company who's doing good work. And it just, I think it makes sense. And it's, it's amazing that you're, you're already able to do that in a for-profit entity. And, you know, I think the reason we did do that was because I did it uh, and I went and worked for an NGO. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent me to Guatemala to teach a co-op how to roast. And when I got there, you know, on the way, I was super pumped. Like, yeah, I'm going to really make an impact here. I'm going to teach like 10 guys how to roast coffee. They're going to start this little company in Guatemala. They're going to start selling nationally, maybe even internationally eventually. And they're going to create jobs in their communities and be this great thing. And I got there and there was like two guys to train. One, really. There wasn't even tables for me to set up a cup and bar. Like I literally was making tables out of pallets and there was over a million dollars in green coffee processing equipment that the European union had gifted to this co-op, but no one checked in on it and no one taught them how to use it. And I just realized that like things slip through the cracks so easy. And that if I just write a check and hand it off, that it might not even find its way to, to have the impact I want it to have. From that experience, I decided that we would go and implement our own, Day. Mm-hmm. That's where the medical and dental chips for Hedico came from was that more or less failure in Guatemala of trying to have an impact. And so besides buying your coffee, what are ways for the community to get involved and support projects like that, that Vigilante supports? Sure. So we love, like once a month, we have an initiative where we're trying to give back locally. So uh, we've had bike rides from here all the way down to Anacostia mm-hmm. to the baseball stadium in Washington, D.C., and it's a beautiful bike path. We donate 10% of our sales from that day to the Anacostia watershed, which is working towards cleaning up the Anacostia waterways by 2025. 
we as a staff all enjoy that waterway. I think a lot of people in the area do. Yeah. And because we love it so much, we want to see it be clean. That's one way you can do it. Come out and ride a bike with us. That's simply come have a coffee and ride a bike. That's one way you can support it. Keep an eye out for our initiatives for certain coffees when we release them. Oftentimes they'll have a social mission attached to them where a percentage of the profits is going back to the farm. For example, we'll release Solok soon. And our intention is to have a portion of those proceeds go back to Solok. Wow, that's that's really incredible. There's, that's a very comprehensive approach to leaving impact. And so those lines in your vision statement aren't aren't there just to make people feel good. They're, they're enacted. The specialty coffee scene in D.C., from five years ago, what's changed? And where's it going to be in five years? What's changed? You went from having Qualia and Vigilante as your only two local roasters. And Swings. You can't forget about Swings. I mean, Swings has been around for 100 years. And I think a lot of the communities doesn't realize what an impact they've played. So Qualia, Vigilante, Swings, Ceremony. Used to be called uh, Pronto five years ago. Another ceremony. You got Blue Bottles entering the game. La Coloma is here. Pete's is here. I think you got Greg, Greg, Gregory's, Gregory's Coffee is mm-hmm. coming. You got upstart roasteries like Lost Sock on the scene. Yeah. You got Compass Coffee that came out of the woodwork. You got a Rare Bird. It's another small roaster in Virginia. Where are they? They're in Virginia. I think okay. Falls Church. Lone Oak. They're also in Virginia. So now you got like eight to ten roasters in the area. I think it's awesome. I think it's really good for the scene. You know, like if anything, our business is a testament to how more community can, doesn't mean that you get less of the pie. It means the pie expands. And so having these big companies as well as smaller companies enter the the mix has been a positive thing. I think it's, it's awakening our community to what specialty coffee is. And then all these different businesses and and individuals and their take on what specialty coffee is and how they want you to experience it. It's been really beneficial in my opinion. And in five years, I think you'll have specialty coffee shops on almost every corner. I think any shop that currently doesn't roast for themselves will roast for themselves. Access to specialty green coffee is easier than ever. And, uh, I think it'll be a really thriving coffee market in five years. It already is thriving. It will be even much more so in five years. When I started here in 2010, when I showed up to a throwdown and told people I wanted to roast coffee, they looked at me like I was crazy. They were like, how are you going to just start roasting coffee, dude? Like, you're not counterculture. What are you doing? Get out of here. Their presence in D.C. was the most heavily five years ago, I think. And I mean, I'm sure it's still very strong, but back then it was only counterculture. Like, if you were selling anything other than counterculture, that was a surprise. So, those guys, the OGs of D.C. and kind of being welcoming to all the roasters like me. Like I remember my first interview that I ever had as a company was with a technician from counterculture, Judith Mandel, who now works for blue bottle and, uh, and Christy who also works for counterculture. Now those three came to my house when I was roasting in our basement and interviewed me and, and they all worked for other roasters. That's a rare thing. I don't think a lot of people do that. So as the scene develops, I think we need to be more inclusive, more accepting, and just open to the scene developing because that's what's going to happen ultimately. It's going to grow with or without you. So you can either be the asshole on the sidelines is like, this is unfair. Or you can be like, yeah, this is inspiring. And I want to step up to the level that these guys are playing at. And that's what I'm going to do. So I think there's two different ways to look at it, but it's going to be a really, really good scene in the next five years. In 10 years, it's going to be insane. 
Can't wait. <laughs> but it's a fun process. But um, vigilante coffee. Yeah. What's vigilante? Or what's the name? My mother's maiden name is vigilante. Uh, when I was in Hawaii and I was working at that small little shop, the guy who owned it was doing my taxes, like filling out my little employee sheet. Said, Your last name is vigilante? I was like, well, I don't really use it that much. It's my mother's maiden name. He was like, well, if you ever start a coffee company, you got to call it vigilante. I was like, all right, sure. Three years later, we actually started one. And when we first were going, we were like, what about, you know, we kicked around crema, but that existed out in, I think, Colorado or something. And we couldn't think of any other good names, and Vigilante was the best one. So we were like, all right, let's go with Vigilante. Luck, serendipity again. Yeah. And what do I think it means? I think generally a Vigilante is someone who goes in and takes the law into their own hands because they're not happy with what's happening. I think that's what we did 2010. I think we literally just showed up and we're like, we're going to roast our own. We're going to pop up wherever we can. We're going to do farmer's markets. We're going to work harder than anyone else in our immediate environment. And we're going to try to create a name. And I think we faced a lot of resistance at first. There wasn't a lot of love for vigilante when we first got going. But because we took that approach and we just kept our head down, kept doing our thing, that we have started to get that widespread love and appreciation. Um, so... Now vigilante just means, I guess, doing things our way, you know, mm -hmm. love and intention, trying to create something we're proud of. Yeah. That's, there's a round I, I like to do with everybody and it's, it's just kind of, I say a word and you say what you think of when you <laughs> nice. initially think of, or when you hear the word. Okay. This could uh, be a dangerous game for me. <laughs> uh, uh, well, tell me what I shouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, coffee. Sustainability. Why? Surfing. Mugs. Coffee. We're going in circles now. <laughs> um, Ashley. The Cornerstone. Espresso. Macchiato. Is that your favorite drink? Oh, yeah. Love me a macchiato. You just finished a macchiato. <laughs> but you ordered five more, so love <laughs> macchiato. Thank you for spending some time with me. Oh, dude. Sharing your you. passion. Have the courage to change. Yeah. Have the Absolutely. courage to change. I appreciate your time, man. And that's a wrap, folks. After the credits, hear this unprepared podcaster, briefly interviewed by Chris. If you want to learn more about Vigilante Coffee, check out VigilanteCoffee.com or find them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Vigilante Coffee. Stay up to date on Drip by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at DripDCPodcast. Lastly, check out our website at dcdrippodcast.com. A quick thanks to the people who support this endeavor. Music by The Broke Royals, artwork by Rebecca Silverstein, creative support by Wesley Stukenbroker, and editing by Steve Stewart. Thanks so much, and keep brewing community. I got a question for you. Oh, uh, okay. I asked two questions when okay. I travel around the world. One is specifically for folks that are 65 years old and older. Unfortunately, you don't fall under that. Yeah, not yet. Give it some years. But the other question I ask is, uh, you're on an island. Mm -hmm. You're going to be on this island for your entire life. You're going to live and you're going to die on this island. You get to bring one food, one drink, and one album. What are you going to bring? One album. Whew. Man, that's tough for me. Is there anything else on this island that I can eat? Yeah, it's an island. You might have some coconuts and some stuff. Okay. Like that. So this is like the staple. Yeah. Are we yeah. thinking utility or is this just like 
It's up to you it's how long you want to live. That's true. You go out in flames or something. My mom always made, it's a combination of food, but my mom always made uh, pizza bread, which is very similar to a calzone, but it was, it was passed to my mom from my aunt, and it's just awesome. You know, it's nice. I could eat like two or three loaves of it and not even feel bad about it. I think that's a good pick. So you can you can make it anything Hawaiian. If we're talking about Hawaii, you can do just like a pesto pizza, pepperoni. Oh yeah, oh it's it's awesome. And so since I can make water elsewhere, for sure bring coffee. Awesome, probably vigilante coffee. I appreciate that. Um, probably be difficult to make it the way you guys do, but uh, if you drop it in, make it happen. <laughs> um, and then the last question: What album? So I'm the last person you want to ask that. I'm not. I'm not super into, well, I love music, but I don't know a ton about it. But uh, my buddy's in a band, and they're called the Broke Royals. Okay. And they're from D.C. Nice. They actually do the intro music for this podcast. Awesome. And I think I'd bring their first album. The which, Broke Royals. The Broke Royals. So they're kind of like indie rock. He may describe it differently. That's but like the ultimate love right there. To yeah. say you're going to take this album and listen to it. It's going to be on yeah. loudspeakers every day on this yeah. island. But it, you know, it's uh, it's good stuff. If you want to dance to it, you can. If you just want to sit there and cry, you can. That's perfect. It's, it's whatever you want. Nice. Very so, good responses. Yeah. Pizza bread and coffee. Vigilante coffee. And uh, in the Broke Royals albums. All of them. I'm going to take them all. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. It's your eye. All right. Cool. It's funny, I asked that question to coffee farmers all over the world, and uh, the most recent one was a guy in Colombia. He said coffee, too, his coffee. Okay. And I had just done an AeroPress of his coffee for him that we roasted and I brought back with me, did an AeroPress. And his food, I thought was hilarious. He said Sancocho. Sancocho is like the traditional poor man's Colombian soup. It's just like, got a lot of vegetables, maybe a little piece of meat, like in this broth but like you can have any food you want in the world bro you're bringing sancocho and he's like yeah sancocho <laughs> like alright did he say why uh, he just said he loves it he was, I was like you eat this every day anyway he was like yeah I, I know but I still want it I, I want sancocho <laughs> I thought that was so funny I was like alright cool so that question I think is a great way to know people yeah. like, to get to know them they let their guard down a bit and the one that I ask older folks is uh What's the most important thing you've learned yeah. on your 65 years here on earth? And you get some gems. Oh, I bet. Oh, man. From like patience to the, the one that's most reoccurring is how you treat people. Hmm. Um, follow your passions. I was yeah. the owner of a coffee farm in Colombia. A bar made in Tortola in the British Virgin Island of Tortola. Been working this bar for 40 years. Like this part of the island is like totally more or less barely there she said it's how you treat people and so I I'm working on a book where I'm collecting what all these people say and it's just going to be like a great little coffee book full of life gems that's incredible I can't wait to read that I recommend all young people go out and do that there's young people listening to this podcast your elders have something to say you just got to ask the right question 